0: This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 24. If you want to take your Bibles, Pew Bibles, your Bible apps. My wife, after the 9.30 service, gave her Bible app a one-star rating because she could not find the verses. So maybe just trust the old paper Bible (laughs) if you have that trouble. Luke 24, we're going to read verses 13 through 35. Now the story that we're going to read today, it's another eyewitness account of an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Another piece of the puzzle, another piece of evidence that Jesus is truly risen, and that's why we're studying these stories from Easter through Pentecost. We're looking at these resurrection appearances because if Christ has truly been raised from the dead, then everything has changed, and it's time to give Jesus his rightful place in our lives. So the story that we're going to read this morning, um, it's a very familiar story to many of you, I'm sure. It's a very well-written story. It's comforting. It's simple until you start to dig in. And then you see it's pretty complex. There's conflict, there's confrontation in this story. So today what we're gonna see is we're gonna see what Jesus finds when he finds us. We'll see the way that we can come to truly find him. And then we're gonna see that the only appropriate response once we finally recognize our Savior and Lord is to tell the world about it. So let's read this incredible story from the Gospel of Luke Luke is the only gospel who records this story. It's the first resurrection appearance in his gospel. And you have to remember, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. That's a lot of stories, right? So of all the stories he could have told, Luke chooses this encounter with two followers of Jesus on the road to a town called Emmaus to tell us something about the resurrected Christ. So let's read it and see if we can figure out why. Luke 24 Again, I'm reading verses 13 through 35. It says, now the same day, so this is the first Easter Sunday, this is Resurrection Sunday. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know about the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that you would take this familiar passage, a familiar story that as it often happens, can become unfamiliar to us. Make it familiar again. Help us to see the depth of what's happening here as Jesus encounters two of his disciples. So this morning, we pray that you would open our minds, that Jesus would show us everything all the scriptures say about him, that you'd open our hearts, that as we come to the table, that we could receive you, that our whole selves would be given all for the glory of your name will be surrendered to you as Savior and Lord. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. amen. So a couple of things right off the top. In verse 16, it says, but they were kept from recognizing him. Some translations, a better translation says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now that word recognize, epigonosco in Greek, one definition says this of the Greek. It says, to connect present information with what was known before. Okay, so Jesus had many followers. These two on this road to Emmaus, they weren't part of the original 12, but they were disciples of Jesus. But somehow between Friday and Sunday, what was familiar to them had become unfamiliar. Like how and why did that happen? The next verse, verse 17, says this. And he said to them, "What are you discussing together as you walk along?" They stood still. Their faces what? Downcast. All right. So when I read this in the verses later, this is one of the first aha's for me as I began to read and study this passage. Jesus speaks, stops them right in their tracks. They look down, sad. Their faces were downcast. And at first, that makes sense, right? Their teacher had been killed. They thought their movement was over. But then I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before. They say this to Jesus in verse 22 and 23. They say this. They say, Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. This is really important. These two disciples of Jesus had already heard the news that the tomb was empty. They heard that their friends, people they trusted, they heard they had received some incredible news, yet here we find them walking from Jerusalem, the very place where people are discovering the empty tomb and receiving this good news. We find these two disciples walking from Jerusalem back to the suburbs to a town about 7 miles away. On Easter Sunday, they had given up and gone home. But Jesus told his followers time and again that he was going to return. And even in light of the rumors and the news that something remarkable was going on. They start the road back home. They stand still, their faces downcast. So the question is why? (laughs) And listen, this is kind of hard to hear at first, but I'm convinced that for these two followers of Jesus, it's as if resurrection wasn't enough. And listen, that might sound harsh, But they actually say it themselves. They weren't looking for a resurrection. They hoped for something else. Listen to this from verse 21. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to do what? To redeem Israel. They were looking to be redeemed. But you have got to understand what they meant when they used the word redeemed, because it means something very different to us today. The word redeem simply means to be bought back, to be purchased to be bought with a price. In the Old Testament, in Israel's story, just like Beth showed us earlier, this word was always used in relation to slavery and oppression. God redeemed Israel when he freed them from slavery in Egypt. Here at the time of Jesus, 1,500 years later, Israel saw itself once again as slaves to an impressive and oppressive power, slaves to occupying Rome, That's the redemption they were looking for. They wanted to be redeemed. They wanted to be purchased. They wanted freedom. But their political and cultural enemies would be the ones who would pay the price. They wanted a mighty warrior, someone like King David, to come in and take charge and make things right. They wanted a redeemer to change their circumstances so that they could continue on and live on earth in peace. Listen to the irony in what they say. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We hoped he would redeem us, but he was condemned to death instead. Y'all, on the other side of the cross, we can see now clearly what they couldn't see then. We know that's exactly how he redeemed them. By his death, vindicated and confirmed in his resurrection, he redeemed them from the oppression of sin and death. He bought them at the greatest price, he freed them from slavery to their own sinful nature. But that's not what they were looking for. They wanted someone who would save them from their circumstance, not realizing that what we really need to be saved from is ourselves. I told you, it's a sweet, comforting story until you start to dig. It's comforting because Jesus meets them right where they are, but it's convicting because it exposes a deep truth about humanity. This is what Jesus finds when he finds us. And on the other side of the cross, today, y'all, it's worth asking. We need to ask. Are we looking for Jesus to save us from our circumstances? Or can we see that he came to save us from ourselves? Am I more worried about Jesus coming to save me from them, whoever them might be? Or do I turn to him first in repentance and ask him to save me from me? That's the question. And we know these two disciples got the answer wrong. We know that on that Sunday afternoon, Jesus met those two disciples on the right road, but spiritually they were going in the wrong direction. We know this because in all of Jesus's appearances, this is the only one where he responds to his disciples with judgment, with a sense of condemnation. The message makes it really clear. It says this in verse 25. So thick-headed, so slow-hearted, Why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Ouch! (laughs) Look, in a way, their thick-headedness, it wasn't all their fault. Like that's the story that they were told. Right? That's the version of the faith that they grew up with. Jesus came to show everyone that our vision of God's redemption, it's never big enough. But it's hard to unlearn what we have learned. And Jesus knows this. And that's why even as he does judge them, as he condemns them, he'll meet them right where they are. He will offer them a sweet correction. He'll take the time to do the long, hard work of helping them to fully understand, showing them how to recognize him again, showing them how they can connect present information with what was known before. It says this in verse 26. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in what? All the scriptures concerning himself. This is so important. It doesn't say that he looked at one part of the Old Testament and used that to prove that he was Israel's Messiah. Y'all, he walked through All of it. That was one long seven-mile hike. (laughs) But he showed them throughout the whole scriptures how Genesis, through the prophets, the writings and the history of Israel, he showed them how it's always been all about him. One of our core values at First Pres is what we call biblical literacy. We believe that God has called us to be a people who are biblically literate as we follow and make disciples of Jesus. And for us, the key to biblical literacy is not knowing everything in the Bible, it's knowing how to read the Bible. And the most important thing to know about how to read the Bible is to remember that it all points to Jesus. We call it reading scripture Christologically, reading all of scripture through the lens of Christ. Like, for example, take the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, right in the book of Genesis. Joseph's story is incredible. He was an incredible man. Like, I mean, okay, he started a little dreamy, right? A little, little braggadocious to his brothers. But in the end, like, he sacrificed everything to remain faithful to God, and he did it time and time again. Now, most Bible studies will take you directly from the story of Joseph, Joseph to you, right? The story of Joseph is all about life lessons on how to be courageous, courageous and trustworthy and righteous. Okay, that's all good. We should be all those things but these stories first and foremost they're not about us in these stories we get a picture of who Christ is and what Christ will do joseph is not the christ he is not perfect but just like ruth and daniel and others throughout the old testament these are flawed people whose faithfulness in a faithful world it stands out And their stories reveal something to us about the one who will be so perfectly obedient and faithful that he was worthy of the cross and the resurrection. Like when we come to realize that all of the stories of the Bible are first and foremost about Jesus, then we begin to understand what God's story is really all about. I wanna help us do this. Uh, There's a Bible study method that I've shared before, but I'm learning no matter how many times I share it, I can't share it enough. So here we go again. Um, it's very simple. It's just four questions. And four questions that I ask every time I sit down with a passage before I'm ready to write or preach on it. We need to ask this every time we approach Scripture, no matter what we're reading. Four simple questions, but the key is to ask them in the right order. So the first question to ask reading any Scripture who is God? Jesus, Holy Spirit. What is this story? What is the scripture telling me about the nature and the character of God? That's where we start. The next question is in this story, what has God done? The father through the son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what has he done? Then we ask the third question, who am I? Who are we? In light of who God is and what God has done, what does that tell us about who we really are? And it's only after those first three questions are answered that then we ask the final, so what? It's the question we ask here every Sunday, but we ask it last. So what? Now that I know who Jesus is and what he's done, now that I've reflected on what it means for me to be his creation, his child, so what? Now how am I supposed to respond? Like if you'll start with those four questions, every time you read scripture, I'm convinced that the person and the work of Jesus will be revealed to you more and more. That's when we can start to consider how we apply this to our daily lives. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Well, that's not the only way we find Jesus. And that brings us to the last part of the story. And this is a part of the story that we're actually gonna reenact in just a few minutes. It says this in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Our friend Janet Reach on Wednesday night when we were studying this in our Bible study, she made a really important point. And it helped me to notice that word burning in the Greek is the word for cauterize, to cauterize something. Our flesh has been cut off, cut off from God. What Christ does, it causes us to burn from within, right? Burning that flesh so that we're protected from further infection, so that our hearts can be healed and made new. And remember how I tell you, if you want to understand any story in scripture, not only ask those four questions, but where, where else can you go? Where do you go? Back to the beginning, back to Genesis. And I'm serious. Because what Jesus needs these disciples to understand is the scope of what he's done to heal their broken hearts. This is bigger than anything they could imagine. Listen to this again. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Tell me if you recognize any of this language in this next verse it says this from genesis 3 she took its fruit and ate she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked like do you see what's being undone do you see what's really being redeemed In taking and eating something that's been forbidden, it's sin. It ravages our bodies. We recognize our brokenness and our shame and we hide from God. But in taking and consuming the gift from God, the consuming Christ's body, then our eyes are opened and now we can clearly see the truth that Jesus is Lord and we are his people. In Christ's broken body, our brokenness is healed, our shame is covered over whatever it was that separated us from God no longer has that power over us and we no longer need to cover ourselves. We no longer need to protect ourselves from him. We no longer need to hide from him. Now we can come to see him face to face. We can come to know him even as we are already fully known. These two disciples thought they were inviting a stranger into their home, thought that they were the host preparing a meal to share with him only to realize, as Jesus does, he turned the tables and he was the host. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. You're gonna hear us repeat these words in just a few minutes. And it was at that moment that their eyes were opened and what was unfamiliar became familiar again. They were able to connect present information with what was known before. This is the key, the whole picture. Because it's when we see how the scriptures all point to Jesus, when we understand that in our minds, and then when we encounter Jesus in the sacrament of communion, when he hits our hearts, that's when our whole self, mind and heart, that's when we're ready and able to have an experience with the resurrected Christ that will transform our lives. It's only when the mind and the heart finally are in sync That's when everything changed for these two disciples. That's when everything changes for us. In this simple, comforting story, we've we've seen who God is in the person of Jesus. We've seen what Jesus has done, that he's paid the price to redeem us, to truly redeem us, not from our circumstances, but from our own sinful nature, to redeem us not from others, but from ourselves. And we've seen that these two disciples are taken on a journey, not only on a road to Emmaus and not only through scriptures, but all the way back to the garden. And there they're reminded that they are God's children and they're called to return, to come home. So we've seen all that. We've answered three questions. What's the fourth question? So what? Here we go. Verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembling together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen indeed. When Christ is revealed in the scriptures, when the presence of Christ is experienced in the sacrament of communion, the only right response is to go. To go and tell others what's happened. To go and tell others the good news, that's it. That is the only right response. And listen, if we are doing this right, if we're doing this right, when we leave here on Sunday, there should be a burning within us. There should be a sense of anticipation, a sense that we just had the best news ever. <laughs> a sense that we're not afraid of what it might be like to go tell somebody how much they're loved by God, but that we get to. We get to be the bearer of good news in a world that's full of bad news. Y'all, listen, if that's not the way that we leave here on Sundays, then we need to critically think about it. And we need to repent, both of what we're doing as a church, as leaders, and as individuals. Because if Christ is truly risen from the dead, if we've really accepted that, if we accept that he came to save us from ourselves, if we are ready to make him the Lord of every part of our lives, if we're ready to make him our primary love, then everything has changed. And everything in our lives must change. This story is convicting. It hit really close to home for me. For much of my life, I wanted Jesus to save me from my circumstances. Some days I wake up and I still do. For much of my life, I didn't think of myself as a sinner. I didn't recognize the depth of my brokenness. Some days I wake up feeling about the same way. (laughs) I didn't think I needed to be saved first from myself. I thought the real problem was everybody else. The problem with that, I don't think I'm alone. I think you know. When the problem is everybody else, that starts a spiral. That problem becomes anyone else. The problem with my life is anyone else except for who? Me. Look, you'll notice in the story, only one of those two disciples is named, Cleopas. Y'all, Luke knew the name of the other disciple. He knew who they were. He left that name out on purpose. It's a narrative device used by all the gospels because leaving the name out for one of the disciples invites you into story to take their place, invites you to stand next to Cleopas being revealed to you as the person of Jesus. So that you can see it's not just about them. This is not just somebody else's story. This is also about you. Because in one way or another, this is what Jesus finds when he finds all of us. People who want to be saved from our circumstances, not from ourselves. And listen, this kind of thinking, it can cause huge problems for our lives. Like if my hope is simply for a change in my present circumstances... Y'all, I can turn to any number of things other than Jesus to help with that, right? Like what will help me change my present circumstances? I mean, money can help, politics can help, position, power, status, relationships can help. All of these things can help change my circumstances. And all of these things can be good things. But when we put all of our hope in them, then they become idols, idols. And even those good things become destructive things. When we turn to them to just help us cope with the difficulties of our circumstances, rather than first looking inward at who I am, if that's all we do, we will never be changed. Listen, life is hard. Jesus never promised anything else, He said it directly. He said, In this world, you will have trouble. But then he said, but take heart because I've overcome the world. He's defeated the one thing that can truly destroy our lives forever. The one thing that can keep us separated from him forever. And because he's done that, we can have real hope. Not passing hope in the things of this world, real hope. Real hope that can help us not to be free from the hardships of this life but hope that will help us endure this present suffering. And then one day we will overcome all the pain and brokenness both in ourselves and in the world. Listen, when I realized that this is the truth of the gospel, that this is what Christ came to do, that he came to redeem me from me, when I accepted that, that's when everything changed. And I'm telling you, the first thing that began to change was my love for him. Jesus was just one of many loves in my life as long as I can remember. But now I'm learning how to make him my primary love, to put him first above all things. And when I'm successful at that, when the Spirit is leading me, when I'm saying yes to that work, he's making me, I believe, a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, and a better friend. A ton of room still to grow. You can ask my wife and kids. (laughs) Many of you know. But he's making me more, more and more each and every day. He's just asking me to trust him, to put all my hope in him to do that work. Now, these are the questions that we have to face as we prepare our hearts for communion. I can't answer them for you. I don't know the state of your heart, but I know that we all have to be faced with these questions. Are you prepared to let Jesus save you from your brokenness? Are you just here hoping that he'll save you from your circumstances? Is Jesus today just one of many loves in your life? Or are you prepared to let Jesus be the primary love of your life from which all other love flows? Now the answer to these questions, they will change everything. The answer to those questions changes everything about our relationship with God, which will change everything about our relationship with each other, which will change everything about the way we endure and walk through the hardships of this life as we look forward to life with him forever, a life free from pain and suffering and mourning and death. So I want to invite you, I'm going to take a moment of silence, then I'm going to pray for us. I wanna invite you to truly ask yourself those questions. We might think that those are evangelical questions that you ask somebody who's lost. Uh, Is Jesus talking to people who were lost on the road? I mean, they were, but, but they already knew him, right? They were his disciples. These are the questions Jesus asks of his own disciples. So it's right to ask ourselves that question. So I'm gonna give you a moment of silence. Ask yourself, Jesus, am I inviting you to free me from myself or from my circumstances? And Jesus, can you help me to make you the primary love of my life? I'll give you a second to pray and then I'll close. Father, we have seen your son revealed to us through the scriptures this morning. And now as we take this time, these next couple minutes to prepare our hearts to meet you at the table, we pray that we'd have a fresh experience of your presence with us, that your spirit would open our eyes, that together with scripture communion would help bring the mind and heart together so that we can know you fully, give our whole selves over to you And watch you do the work of transforming us into the people that you always meant for us to be. We pray that the scripture in this meal would then empower us, would cause a burning in our hearts that we just can't hold it in anymore. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen.